You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Good morning. My name is Raj. My wife, Christy. Uh, We're going to be reading a little bit uh, about some more people from the Reformation as we've been going through this series. So we've talked already a little bit about Martin Luther, uh, and today I want to talk a little bit more about a lesser-known Martin, uh, Martin Bucer. Uh, We don't know him as much because he didn't leave a church called the Bucerites or the Bucerins, um, but he was very influential within the the Reformation. Um, So Martin Bucer, like many Reformers, uh, was a well-educated former priest. Uh, He didn't have a... uh, He didn't start... Uh, inside a monastery, uh, but he, he joined the Dominican order. If you remember, the Dominicans were the ones that were selling indulgences, but really their, their job was to minister to the, the laity, uh, and they were uh, preaching and caring for the poor and, and whatnot. Um, and Bucer heard Luther speak at a debate in Heidelberg in 1518, and he was gripped by Luther's um, discussion about the love of God and how he came and made himself foolish uh, for the, the sins of mankind, uh, and this gripped Luther, or gripped Bucer, and he left the Catholic Church uh, and came into Protestantism. So Bucer was from a pure, poorer background than most Reformers. Uh, we talked about Calvin and Luther and how they came from wealthy backgrounds, uh, but he did uh, get educated in a Dominican monastery near Strasbourg, uh, Germany. Uh, he joined them at 15, and, was, and they recognized his intelligence and sent him off to Heidelberg to further his education. Uh, that's where he heard Luther speaking uh, uh, at a debate. <clears throat> so after he left the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, he became an, a, a pastor at a nearby town. And uh, he was also one of the first reformers to marry in 1522. Uh, and meanwhile, while he was at Heidelberg, Strasbourg, which was an uh, influential city, became, came under Protestant influence. Uh, and they were looking for somebody to head up the church there in Strasbourg. Uh, they were probably looking for somebody a little less uh, inflammatory than Luther. Um, if, well, we already talked about Luther. So uh, <laughs> um, so Strasbourg was both on the, the Rhine River and on major trade routes. And so there was a, a pretty influential city. Uh, and Bucer took the, the pastorate or the, the leadership of the church there uh, and seemed to fit the bill for what they were looking for. Uh, Bucer can be described as a peacemaker uh, of the Reformation. He was widely read uh, and uh, understood everybody and where they were coming from. Uh, And he was always involved in these uh, debates and these um, meetings between uh, different reformers, so the the Anabaptists and the Catholics. Whenever there were um, disagreements, he tried to get everybody together and get them to agree on on certain things, even got uh, Luther and uh, Zwingli, somebody who we haven't talked about, uh, to get together uh, and talk about uh, the Lord's Supper uh, and came, uh, got them to agree on a few points, uh, but uh, ultimately did not uh, get them to see everything eye to eye, but he was always involved in that type of conversation and trying to get people to see uh, eye to eye on on different things or at least come to an agreement. Um, He was uh, a little bit of a wordy writer. Luther referred to him as a chatterbox. Uh, he used a lot of uh, ambiguous wording in what he would say, uh, a lot of times just trying to be able to say things in a way that everyone would agree with him, uh, agree, you know, even if they might have different perspectives, they could agree because of some ambiguous writing. He came 
under a lot of uh, scrutiny because of this, uh, because he maybe didn't nail things down specifically. Uh, both contemporary and modern writers look at him this way. Um, but he, he was really trying to get uh, those who were enemies uh, within Protestantism to, to see things eye to eye. Um, and he was pretty much a major player in every religious convention in the Holy Roman Empire for 25 years, from 1524 to 1548. Um, but he also went beyond peacemaking. So uh, when Calvin was exiled from Geneva for three years, he found refuge in Strasbourg with, with Bucer. Um, he, he ministered with and learned from Bucer. Uh, and Calvin uh, really didn't want to seem, seem to not want to leave and go back to Geneva. Uh, when he did return to Geneva, uh, he was given much freer reign uh, over in Geneva than Bucer was in Strasbourg. Uh, and it seems that uh, the, institution, the institutions that Calvin used in Geneva for the church reform, uh, the, the governance of the church, uh, was uh, from Bucer's teaching. Uh, so, and from, from his example. Um, in fact, the, the idea that Calvin instituted uh, that the church should be responsible for the discipline of it, the believers and members of the church rather than involving the civil authorities came from Bucer. Uh, as the political climate changed and Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire turned uh, to the business of solidifying his rule, he made some concessions to Catholic theology, allowing um, priests to marry, uh, allowing uh, the congregation to take part in the Lord's Supper in both the bread and the wine, uh, but he did mandate that the other, the other practices of the Catholic Church remain in place. Um, Bucer stayed in Strasbourg for a little while until that was uh, not a good idea, and, uh, and then fled to uh, England, Protestant England at the time, uh, where he became, um, under, under Edward, Edward VI, and he gave him chair at, uh, uh, gave him the, uh, the chair of religion at Cambridge. Uh, and they worked together uh, on the common book of prayer. <clears throat> so um, Bucer spent his last few years teaching in Cambridge and writing, uh, structuring the British church and the British government. Uh, Edward received uh, Bucer's works uh, enthusiastically and rewarded Bucer with a doctorate from Cambridge. Uh, shortly after he got that doctorate, he became ill and died. Um, and he was buried there at St. Mary's. Uh, Bloody, Queen Bloody Mary, then, uh, who was the Catholic, um, had his body exhumed, uh, excommunicated, and burned. So uh, uh, after that, um, we've already talked a little bit about the, the climate in England, um, but Elizabeth came to the throne, reinstated uh, Bucer uh, into the church, uh, and then, but the, interestingly, the same vice chancellor at Cambridge oversaw both ceremonies. So. Um, Martin Bucer's love for other believers and his confidence in God can be summed up in exchange between uh, a certain Catholic priest uh, at the conference in Regensburg in 1541. Uh, when the priest was introduced to Bucer, he said, How great will be the fruit of, fruit of unity, and how profound the gratitude for all, of all mankind. Uh, Bucer replied, Both sides have failed. Some of us is, have overemphasized unimportant points, and others have not adequately reformed obvious abuses. With God's will, we will ultimately find the truth. Uh, so that's a little on Martin Bucer, uh, the peacemaker uh, of the Reformation. Hi, y'all. I'm excited to be back from Georgia so I can tell you a little bit about Marguerite. 
Uh, we've talked about three women in the Reformation so far. We had a former nun homemaker, a teenage queen martyr, and a writer. And today we're going to talk about really a pair of queens, uh, Marguerite de Navarre and her daughter Jeanne d'Albray. So Marguerite was born in 1492, yes, the same year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and her brother Francois was next in, next in line to be the king of France. So we're talking lowborn, we're talking top strata now. And I was highly unusual for uh, even a very well-born woman to be educated along with her brothers, but Marguerite was. She was educated with her brother in things like history and um, philosophy and seven different languages. My guess is that Francois insisted, as you learn more about their relationship, that's what my guess is happened. But she was educated with her brother, but then as was usual, she was married off when she was 17 in a political marriage. Uh, the guy was about the same age that she was, but he was her inferior socially and, and intellectually and so forth. So it wasn't a very happy marriage. You seemed to be off a lot. And she was actually closer to her brother, Francois. Her, brother sick was, his, her brother's wife was often sick, and she would serve as queen. She would hostess at functions, and she would plan things and so forth. And um, sometime during this first marriage, which lasted 16 years, she came to hear Reformation doctrines, came to saving belief in Christ. And Francois was a staunch Roman Catholic, right? So for a lot of people, that wasn't a very happy thing. But he had so much affection for his sister that when people would accuse her, she's, you know, she's spouting Protestant doctrines, right? He would defend her. And uh, one of the things he said fairly frequently, apparently, is, my sister Marguerite is the only woman I ever knew who had every virtue and every grace without any admixture of vice. So that's pretty high praise from the king of France, right? So she used her position and her brother's affection to protect reformers in France. Somebody would start spouting Protestant doctrine. Her brother would have them arrested. She would go to him and beg for their release, and he would release them. So, yeah, she really used that posi position. But his trust and his affection for her were well repaid when Charles V, who he just talked about, he's both the, the king of, of Spain and ruler of the Holy Roman Empire, right? So he has a lot of power. Apparently there was a battle, and Francois was taken, and Charles V took him back to Spain. So Marguerite followed him and took care of him, but not only did she do that, she used that diplomatic training from that education to negotiate his release and brought him back to France from Spain. So she essentially rescued her brother, which I think is great. And in that same battle in which her, in which her brother was taken, her husband was killed. So shortly after that, she was married off again. This time, she moved up a step, and she married the King of Navarre, Henri d'Albray. Now, Navarre is a little but independent kingdom right on the border between France and Spain. So it's this tiny place. It takes a lot of diplomatic um, work to keep it independent, you can imagine. And um, again, it wasn't a very happy marriage. Uh, Henri was staunchly Catholic. Navarre was completely Catholic. They hadn't really been exposed to the Protestant doctrines. And Marguerite throughout her life wrote poetry. And her poetry during this time really reflects this longing for union with Christ that she was not experiencing in her earthly marriages. 
Um, but even though her husband was really Catholic, he didn't really mind her holding Protestant services and, and so forth. But one time he was out hunting and she had a table laid in an underground chamber and she celebrated the Lord's Supper with other Protestants. And Henri came back from hunting and he was livid. He stalked into her apartments and he struck her. So Marguerite told her brother. So Francois essentially says, nobody slaps my sister and takes off from France, heading back to Navarre, threatening war. So Henri comes to, to her and he begs for her forgiveness. And he says, okay, I'll allow Protestant practice in the country and I'll even read about reform doctrine myself. So Roman Catholic Francois forces Henri, King of Navarre, to allow Protestantism in his country, which I think is great, thanks to Marguerite. So um, Francois didn't change, however. He went back to France. He banned Protestant books. He continued his, his persecution of Protestants. And Marguerite was thoroughly saddened by this. You can imagine your brother will not turn away. And so she wrote, this is, one, this is some of her poetry I'd like to share with you. It's written to, to Christ. O you, my priest, my advocate, my king, on whom depends my life, my everything. O Lord, who first did drain the bitter cup of woe and knows its poison, if man e'er did know. These thorns, how sharp, these wounds, how deep. Savior, friend, king, O plead my cause, I pray. Speak, help, and save me, lest I fall away. In 1533, Marguerite became the first Protestant woman to publish a volume of poetry, so she was a published writer as well as a queen. And this early writing shows a clear grasp of the theology of salvation, but it clung to a lot of Roman Catholic mysticism. Um, but then her brother, like I said, her brother went back to France, toughened his stance against Protestantism, banned, banned books or so forth. But his respect for his sister continued to allow her to protect believers. When she would go back to France to visit, he would halt execution of Protestants as long as she was there. So she went back to visit quite often. But it was also natural for her to go back to visit because Francois had also taken her daughter. At the age of two, he took her daughter Jeanne to raise her as a Roman Catholic because he didn't want any more Protestant rulers, right? So he, he uh, takes her. Um, so... Jeanne's in France being educated as a Roman Catholic. Marguerite's in Navarre coming back to visit as often as she can. Her brother's persecuting Protestants in France, and she's taking them in Navarre, right? They run from France. They go to Navarre. She, she protects them. There, in fact, Calvin and Melanchthon, uh, Luther's associate, were, were two of the men that came to Navarre and that she protected there. The fun thing is that she and Calvin exchanged letters, and she didn't hesitate to tell him when she felt her, his criticism of other Protestants was too harsh, and he didn't hesitate to tell her that he feared for her spiritual life if she listened to them. So she took in, kind of like Buser, she took in a lot of people who had different perspectives. Uh, before she died, she said that God had used her, but that her daughter would more than fill her place. So I want to tell you a little bit about her daughter. She was not mistaken in that. Her daughter, Jeanne, she was as stubborn as the day is long. That's, that's my summary for, for her character. Um, her uncle, Francois, tried to raise her as a Roman Catholic. He decided she was going to marry this German duke. She said, no, I won't marry the German duke. He says, yes, you will. 
So she wrote two protests, had them witnessed and filed, refused to go to the altar, was carried to the altar, married against her will, and her husband took off for war. And Francois said, I'm done with you, and sent her home to her mom. So back in Navarre, she is more exposed to the Protestant faith, and she becomes a, she becomes a believer. In fact, she became a rather militant believer. And uh, when she became queen, she instituted a total system of reform. Uh, she wasn't just satisfied to allow Protestant practice. Instead, she outlawed Roman Catholic churches. She outlawed the practice of the Mass. She instituted Calvinism as the official religion, and she showed herself to be full of what her mom had said on her deathbed, the energy and moral courage that Marguerite had felt like she lacked. Um, she, she was quite a character. She repeatedly escaped attempts on her life, so she's also traveling back and forth, France and, and Navarre, right? And um, so she escapes attempts on her life. She musters armies to protect her little kingdom. All of these challenges, she... she was a fireball. Um, her son, Henry, Henry, was also taken to be raised as Roman Catholic, right? So eventually, when he's a teenager, she goes back to France and visits him and kidnaps him and takes him back to Navarre, right out from under the, uh, the French ruler at the time. Um, she had the New Testament translated into the Basque language, and she herself paid for its publication. So she did, indeed, more than fill her mother's shoes. Now, her son, Henry, did convert to Catholicism, but he did so in order to ascend to the throne of France. So he became the king of France. And as king, he signed the Edict of Nantes, which for the first time allowed Protestants of France the freedom to worship as they chose. So I just think those two women are um, fascinating examples of, of people who use their position that God allowed them to be born into to uh, further his work. Uh, good morning, church. Uh, I just wanted to thank Christy once again uh, for those bios. Uh, you can tell she's really excited about this stuff. Uh, she wrote all these bios uh, for us, and uh, thank you for using your gifting to serve the church, and it's been really, I'm just really eye-opening, the, the rich heritage that we come from, and uh, so I'm excited about that. I just want to have a, a word of prayer here, and then we're going to jump into our, into our message. Uh, Father, thank you so much uh, for the, the work that you've done throughout history. Thank you for the reformers. Uh, who uh, believed that uh, you had saved them through grace and not through works. And it was that grace that was motivating them to risk their lives and to risk their uh, kids and their fortunes and uh, their political positions uh, because they wanted the world to know about the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we just thank you for that grace that touched their hearts so many years ago and uh, the freedom that they felt through that that then led them to live these sacrificial lives. We thank you for the work that you did through them, but more importantly, we thank you for the work of the cross that you did through Jesus Christ. As we look at uh, your word today and look at sola de gloria, uh, would we, like the reformers, be able to say all glory to God alone? Amen. Uh, so we're uh, here today not just to talk about uh, dead people uh, and what they believed 500 years ago, but we want to talk about how what they believed shape what we believe today as a church and as evangelicals. Um, we have uh, been going through the five solas of the Reformation. We wrap up the series today. Uh, next week, we start in our Advent series. We're going to do a couple of weeks in the book of Luke, so feel free to read ahead in the first few chapters of Luke. 
Look forward to doing that together. I want to read our church covenant to us, to us uh, because it has all the five solas here. And it's going to be up here on the screen. This, this kind of evidence of the work that the Reformers did has drastically shaped us today. Our church covenant says, Scripture alone is the foundation for faith and practice, which is sola scriptura. And it teaches that we are saved through the saving work of Jesus Christ alone, not by our own righteousness, solus Christus, by grace alone, not by our own merit, sola gratia, through faith alone, not by our own effort, sola fide, all to the glory of God alone, sola de gloria. Um, the order of the solas is very intentional. They're not just kind of randomly uh, put together, because when we look at the uh, the order that we see that we start with Scripture, and the Scripture leads us to Christ, who's gracious, graciously made a way for us into the family of God. Um, now we approach God with open hands of faith, uh, we bringing nothing to the table. Therefore, all glory goes uh, to God, which is today's, uh, today's topic. Uh, sola de Gloria is not just a, a good way to wrap up the solas. You know, like when, you, when you're working your way through them and then you finally get to that one, you're like, yeah, that's just a great way to end this whole thing. It's, it just kind of wraps it all up real nicely, kind of like something that Paul would say at the end of an epistle uh, to kind of bring it all together. But it's much more than that. Sola de Gloria reminds us that the Reformation and religion is not ultimately about us. It's about God. Our focus can so many times easily become very self-centered. Even when we ask really important questions like, where can I find God's authoritative revelation? Uh, how can I escape the wrath of God? What must I do to be saved? Those are all very important questions. But the first four solas, they provide the answer to those questions. Sola de Gloria puts them in a proper perspective. The highest purpose of God's plan of salvation in Christ made known in Scripture is not our well-being, as wonderful as that is. The highest goal of God is God. It's bringing Himself glory. Simply put, the fact that salvation is by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone, without any contribution on our part, ensures that all glory is God's and not our own. Likewise, the fact that Scripture alone is our final authority protects the glory of God against us taking credit. As I was doing my research, uh, Sola de Gloria, I think, was probably the least uh, contested of the solas between the Protestants and the Catholics in the fact that they both agreed with the, the statement that all glory belongs to God. Okay, that was something they weren't arguing, but how what we did on earth, how did that affect God receiving that glory? Okay, so what they disagreed on, and this is going to be a kind of a a heavy sentence, I'm going to read it twice. What they disagreed on was whether human beings are so sinful that God's sovereign grace must create and decisively fulfill every human inclination to believe and obey God. Okay, read that one more time. They disagreed on whether human beings are so sinful that God's sovereign grace must create and decisively fulfill every human inclination to believe and obey God. Uh, Now, Martin Luther has uh, his most well-known book is called The Bondage of the Will. 
uh, which, which Luther actually saw, Martin Luther, not, not uh, Martin Bucer, Martin Luther, he saw that book as his most important contribution to the Reformation. Now, that book was written to a response to a Catholic theologian named Erasmus. He had written a book called The Freedom of the Will. And like Luther would do, he decides to name his book The Bondage of the Will in response to that. So the bondage of the will, it wrestled with the question, this in my words, can we choose to come to God? And if so, does our choosing rob God of his glory? Or does God choose for us to come to him, therefore receiving all of the glory? That's the key issue of what Sola de Gloria is wrestling through. Now, Erasmus, on one hand, believed that human beings were fallen, but their fallen will contributed its own decisive, self-determining power to act in faith. Even though we are sinful and we are fallen, we can still choose God. Luther, on the other hand, uh, taught that a failure to see the gravity of our sin and the depth of our corruption and the bondage of our will, if unchecked, will become an assault on the freedom and sovereignty and the glory of God's grace and salvation, therefore making an assault on the gospel itself. Now, Luther doesn't mean that like our will is inactive, that there is nothing for us to do. He means that whenever it is active in faith and obedience, if we can choose God, it's because God is decisively acting and creating and fulfilling that act. God is allowing for us to choose Him. If you can choose God, that's a supernatural ability. You cannot take credit for that ability. So for Luther, the issue of man's bondage to sin and his moral inability to believe in God was like the main root of the Reformation. The freedom of God and the freedom of the gospel and the salvation of men and the glory of God was all at stake in this controversy. So the bondage of the will, uh, according to to Luther, it, it ascribed all freedom and power to God. And for us, complete dependence on God for faith and holiness. And he wrote that the doctrine of the gospel takes all glory, wisdom, and righteousness from men and ascribes them to the Creator who makes everything out of nothing. Okay? So if we are going to be able to wrap our minds around this idea of all glory to God alone, we have to understand the complete bondage that we are in due to sin. Now, uh, luckily, there's some amazing theologians out there even today, guys like John Piper, uh, who talk a lot about this, if you've ever listened to Piper. And I came across one of his messages, and in it he had these five points of five different ways that we are in bondage to sin. And the name of the message was very Piper-esque. It was called The Bondage of the Will, The Sovereignty of Grace, and The Glory of God. Just sounds like something he'd say. Uh, And in it, he lays out these five ways that the Bible describes the bondage that every human being is in. So what I want us to do is just look at those five points uh, briefly, because once we realize the bondage that we're under, then being free from that bondage means much more to us. So we're going to start with the first one, and they're going to be up here on the screen, and I'm going to kind of break them down a little bit. Uh, the first bondage that all human beings are under is called the bondage of legal guilt and divine condemnation, Okay. So out of the five different types of bondages that we're going to talk about, this one's pretty unique and foundational because the other four describe conditions of like the outer man, like just our standing. This one actually describes our legal relationship to God. We've sinned, 
against God, and we are legally guilty of condemnation. Paul describes it like this in Romans 3, 9 through 10. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. It's written, none is righteous, no, not one. Okay? All are under sin. None is righteous, no, not one. But then he continues a little later on in verse 19. Romans 3.19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable, may be held accountable to God. Uh, Royce hit on this verse uh, last week. See, God set up a legal system for humanity to find freedom if they could obey his commands. Instead, what humanity found was their inability to obey the commands of God, and they found themselves being judged. The word accountable in Romans 3.19 means under the sentence of condemnation. You could say in bondage, imprisoned, awaiting execution. Okay? So humanity, we have a position before God, a legal relationship to God. We have mocked his wisdom and his goodness and his authority with our own self-preferences, our own way, our own self-glory. And we are now guilty. We are condemned before God. The justice is impeachable. We will perish. That's a legal standing before God, okay? That's, that's bondage. Wow. Let's look at the second form of bondage. The second form that we see here is what's called the bondage of love for the darkness of self-glorification. Jesus said in John 3, 19-20, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that the bondage of the human heart keeps us from coming to Christ. And it's not because there's a lack of light. It's because we naturally love darkness. We naturally hate light. Well, why would we say something like that? The evidence that I know that is because the evidence that I know that we love the darkness is because you never have to remind us to sin. Do you? No one ever said, don't forget to sin today. You know? Because that's our natural man. We are naturally drawn to the darkness. And we can all see it in our own lives. This is bondage, right, that we are under. What about a third type of bondage? The third type of bondage we see in the Scriptures is the bondage of hatred for the supremacy of God. Uh, Romans 8, 6 through 8. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Paul's saying here that there are two different types of people in the world. Those whose minds are set on the flesh and those whose minds are set on the Spirit of God. Well, Paul continues in verse 9. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Every person, by nature, apart from the work of God's Spirit, this text says we have a mind of flesh. We are hostile to God. We cannot submit to God's laws. You cannot 
submit, if, because we cannot submit to the laws of God, because our natural man, that actually says that we hate God. And you cannot love the thing that you hate. We are all hostile to being under the authority of God. We are in bondage to the hatred of the supremacy of God in our lives. Now, the word hatred, most of us would say, well, I don't hate God. But so many times we hate His Word. And you can't love God and hate His Word. And it's, it's not just a problem that's unique to us. You can't read the Scriptures and not see people who hate the Word of God. Adam and Eve hated God's Word. Cain hated God's Word. The Tower of Babel, they hated God's Word. As the Jews are wandering in the wilderness, they hated God's word. All of these stories are meant to demonstrate our hatred of God's authority in our lives. We're in bondage. How about number four? The bondage of spiritual death. I went over this verse in the Sola um, Gratia series uh, message. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, but I want to focus on the first part. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those are not flattering terms. I mean, think about it. Apart from the, the life-giving grace, all of mankind is, that text says, we're dead in our trespasses. That we're all following the prince of darkness. That we are all the sons of disobedience. All of mankind are in lockstep with the de- desires of body and mind and are children of wrath. By nature, we are carried by the course of the world, led by the prince of darkness. Disobedience is not just a choice. It's it's our nature. And all of those trespasses, they leave us spiritually dead before God. I know, it's intense. Number five, the bondage of blindness to the glory of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 2, 6-8, Paul says that he imparts a wisdom that's not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, which are doomed to pass away. But he says that we impart a secret wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages. Now, he says that none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified Jesus Christ, which makes sense. But then, uh, look what he says in, in, in in 1 Corinthians 2, 13 through 14. Why didn't they understand the wisdom of God? Why didn't they see the glory of Christ? In verse 13, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We cannot know God. We cannot know the work of Jesus Christ. We cannot know that he is the Messiah unless... God opens up our dead heart to that spiritual truth. Paul says um, to the man who does not know Jesus is Messiah, he says it's folly to him, and he cannot know them because they are spiritually seen, and he is blind to seeing God in that way. 
It's a lot of bondage. I'm going to put all five of them up here on the screen, and I want us to feel the, the weight of bondage that the Reformers felt. The bondage of legal guilt and divine condemnation. The bondage of love for the darkness of self-glorification. The bondage of hatred for the supremacy of God. The bondage of spiritual death. The bondage of blindness to the glory of Christ. When we see the true state of our bondage, freedom means something. Once we see that and we continue to see that, we realize how much we have been set free from. And the the glory of grace is that in spite of all of our guilt and all of our wickedness and all of our hatred for His authority and all of our, our dead hearts and our wanderings from God and all of our blindness to His glory, His grace saves us in every way from our desires not to be saved. That's good news. So then what is the gospel's response to those five different types of bondage. We can't just have truth and and then not have the grace. Here's the gospel's response to that bondage. To the bondage of guilt, God says we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to receive by faith. To the bondage of our love for self, He says, I give you the grace of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth so that you will come to your senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. To the bondage of our hatred for the supremacy of God, he declares, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit into your hearts so that you can cry, Abba, Father, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. To the bondage of spiritual death, he says, when you were dead in your trespasses, I made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And to the bondage of blindness to the glory of Christ, God says, let there be light. And instantly, light shone into our hearts, giving us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If we can stand here and see the beauty and the glory of what Christ did, that is a miracle. That is something that we cannot claim for ourselves. Luther, he understood this. In in the book, he said, unless we feel the power and the pervasiveness and the eternal peril of the bondage of will, we will not see or savor or sing the glory of God's sovereign grace. You don't know you've been set free until you realize you've been imprisoned. And it means something to you. So then we go back to this main question that they were wrestling through in the Reformation. Are human beings so sinful that God's sovereign grace must create and decisively fulfill every human inclination to believe and obey God? Luther's answer was yes. All the Reformers, yes. Our answer today, according to our church covenant, yes. See, the, the, the Christian's pursuit of godliness is not I do my part and then God does his part and together we make it. Second, Second Thessalonians 1.11 May God fulfill every resolve for good work and faith by his power. So then what's the place for the good works that we do? What's the place for me coming to God and engaging with God and engaging in His mission? Well, Paul wrestles through that too in 1 Corinthians 15.10. Look what he says here. He says, By the grace 
Um, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Look what he says here. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Our working does not add to God's working. Our working is God's working. And if you and me, if we can sit in this room today and we are no longer in bondage to guilt and death and blindness, and if we can say, I love the light, and we can delight in the glory of God more than our own glory, and if we can love His authority over our own autonomy, and if we can savor the glory of Christ and the gospel as the greatest treasure in the universe, you owe it all, and I owe it all, to a sovereign God. And we, like Paul in Romans eleven thirty six, which is our key text for Sola de Gloria, we can say this, and this is our ultimate goal here, Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Right? That's Paul's response to his theology of justification versus grace or works. As he spends 11 chapters of Romans unpacking this, he ends it says, For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forevermore. Amen. It's finished. But it's interesting because Paul just doesn't stop there. He continues that thought right at the beginning of, of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And look what he says, as we behold the glory of God, our bondage to sin, all these levels of bondage, and and the debts paid, Jesus Christ did the time for us, we're set free. And what does Paul say in that moment? 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, do not present or to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. I don't think we read that text with enough emotion. I'm going to read it again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. Once we've been set free, it leads us to offer our lives in gratitude to the debt that's been paid. Many of the reformers, even the ones that we read about today, they didn't just offer their lives as a living sacrifice. They offered their lives as a sacrifice. What would cause someone to do that? What would cause someone to endure hardship and punishment and rejection by the world and to be seen as fools? It's because they had tasted the glory of God. They had seen the great riches of His love and His mercy. They had been set free from their bondage. Once you taste and see that God is good. Nothing else tastes as good anymore. And you want that. And so the way that we can 
stand and say sola de gloria is by saying, yeah, look at this journey that I've been on, this journey of being in bondage, and then I continue to want to go back into the darkness. But God, he saved me out of that darkness. And now I want the light, and I want to participate in the light. So we are going to be reminded of the glory of God right now. Uh, We're going to be reminded in the glory of God through song as we stand and sing together of the reality of who God is. We're going to be reminded of the glory of God as we come and we receive communion, a visual picture of that grace, of that bondage that we've been set free from. And then we're going to respond to the glory of God by leaving this place and living lives of sacrifice because we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for that visual that you created, the the legal standing. That that resonates with me that I I was on the stand and you were the judge and we all were guilty. There's there's nothing we could do to argue our case. There was witnesses against us. There was evidence against us. There was an, an eternal sentence. You had declared us guilty. And when the time came to sentence us to eternal separation, you turned and you looked at Jesus and you brought him up and you had us get off the stand and you had him sit down and you placed all of that judgment upon an innocent man so that we could be free. And then he paid that that price. But because he was a God and the price was paid, he was raised from the dead. And with it, he brought a new life and the spirit of God that now dwells within his people, that that being forgiven is not something that, that we just believe in our heads, but it's something we feel in our hearts. And now we can live these lives of of sacrificial worship to you. Father, as we we dwell on the grace that's been given us through Jesus Christ, would, would that truth just wash over us like water as we come to the tables to receive communion? If if we are believing the lies of Satan, that we are defined by sin, or that you look at us and you're disappointed or that the darkness is winning and that sin is winning, would we lay all that down at the table, all that down at the altar and replace it with the truth that you have conquered, you are victorious, sin is defeated, the story has a good and righteous ending of us all standing around the throne singing glory to God. Thank you, God. We can't take any credit for that, God. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.